This is the Cinema for All podcast. The celebration of going to the cinema with Jack Chell and Abby Standish. Welcome back to the Cinema for All podcast. We're so excited to bring you another episode for season four, which is all about movie trailers, their history, how they're made and how we respond to them. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our last episode where we chat to John Magaro about friendship on screen and First Cow, go back and check it out because it was a lovely conversation. But before we get started, if you're a film fan and you'd like to start your own community cinema after listening, go to cinemaforall.org.uk or get in touch to find out how to get started. We will, we will help, help you. So it's been a while, so let's catch up. What have you been watching? I want to know all the movie details, Jack. Oh, well, cinemas are open again, so Woo! I've been going to the cinema, which has been really exciting. Um, it's been so nice to be back at our local, which is the showroom cinema. Um, and, you know, there's still some social distancing measures in place. So it feels really comfortable and it feels really safe. Um, so a couple of films that I've seen on the big screen, because, yeah back on the big screen i saw truffle hunters which is um a very me film it's about a group of elderly men in italy who are truffle hunters along with their dogs um and it's about them their relationship to nature their relationship with their animals with their pets um which is very very touching because obviously they're they're working animals but they are also hugely valuable because they hunt these extremely expensive truffles um, but they also just loved to bits. These dogs are absolutely loved to bits by these elderly men. Um, it's a very peaceful film, a lot of countryside, which, you know, I I love the countryside. I'm into foraging and mushroom hunting myself at the moment. Not truffle hunting. That's next level, I reckon. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, really lovely film, and I recommend if people are able to catch up with that or maybe program it for their community venues. It's very, very relaxing and very peaceful Um worthwhile little little bit of peril but it's okay it's okay that sounds so nice yeah it is it's so sweet um i also went to see which is sort of part of the sundance on tour season zola which is the first film based on a twitter thread um which i don't know why that surprised me i feel like i i don't know there's a lot of good stories out there that you encounter via a twitter thread um and I'm surprised that this was the first one. But yeah, this is about Zola, um, who wrote the Twitter thread, who was a stripper in, uh, gosh, I feel like it was New Jersey or somewhere in the northeastern America. And she meets another stripper and they decide to go to Florida to earn a little bit of extra money. And it's about all the kind of sticky situations they get to in the meantime. And some of them are very, very serious. It is, it is kind of presented as quite a funny film with a lot of like little Twitter noises and, you know, quite comedic moments. I think the, the, the character that plays Zola's friend, she's, she's really into cultural appropriation. She's got this sort of fake accent on. Um, and so there are some quite funny moments, particularly with cousin Greg from Succession, who's also in it, but it's also, it is really, really serious. And I think at at moments I felt that it treated some things kind of glibly without giving too much away, you know, some really serious stuff like potentially sex trafficking um, and exploitation of women. And it, it gets very, very stressful. But also in the moment is a very fun film. You get very carried away with it. And it's got this pretty spectacular soundtrack by Mika Levi, who is 
um, the composer from Under the Skin. Um, another couple of great films and it, it uses a lot of electro harp and twitter noises combined which sounds awful doesn't it that sounds unbearable but it's not it's very captivating a really captivating soundtrack and I, I recommend that people perhaps listen to that separately because it's quite soothing um, so yeah Zola I feel like I really enjoyed it in the moment and I've thought about it a lot since and I've also sort of gone and researched a bit more about the true story and um, there's some sort of long reads and real research that's gone on surrounding what was presented in that twitter thread and and yeah i suspected it is a much more serious and upsetting story than is presented in the twitter thread and in the film so you know i, I recommend if people watch the film and like the film to do a bit more research on it because it is it has much more serious real world consequences um than it might appear mm. yeah that that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think um, it it's got a very captivating trailer, hasn't yes. it? I think and, and and it's captivating the same way. If you come across a Twitter thread that just seems wild and it's just all like punch, punch, punch with the story. Um, but like you say, it makes sense that there's a lot of like deeper, potentially darker consequences to the real story. Yeah, and I sort of wish that. The film had addressed that because I think that what happens when you tell a story in this way, and I think what happens if you tell any kind of story like that, that's a funny story from your past that's very dramatic, you do embellish a bit as you go along. You mm-hmm. do make things more dramatic. Maybe you throw in something that's a little bit more extravagant than what actually happened. And maybe you downplay the sadness and the real world consequences and you know, all of the additional influences that push people to really desperate scenarios um, because you're telling a silly story. And I wish that the movie had kind of addressed that unreliable narration a little bit more. It, it, mm. does, it does address it, but not enough for my liking. That's, I find unreliable narration really intriguing mm-hmm. um, in all sorts of dramas and in literature. So I would have liked that explored a little bit more. But, you know, it's there. If you do your research, if you if you look a little bit further, if you find the Reddit threads where the, the other, the person who the other character's based on sort of does an answer, uh, it, it's kind of fascinating, really, um, as well as, you know, what actually happened to these people, these real life people afterwards, you know, real, yeah. real life crimes happened. So, again, don't want to spoil too much, but, you know... Okay. Read around, read around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what else did I see? I went to see Girlfriends, um, the film from the 70s, which um, is, is not my first time watching the film. I watched it when Frances Ha came out because Frances Ha was considered by a lot of people who knew Girlfriends to be uh, an homage at best, a rip-off at worst. Um, but it's... It's very similar, certainly very similar themes, but that certainly doesn't bother me because I think when you... I mean, we talked about male friendships on screen in the last episode, but when you think about films about men and male friendships, male careers, men in New York City in particular, there's millions of them. So it doesn't really bother me that there's two that are kind of similar um, that are exploring perhaps uh, how people move on from being really close friends and roommates and how your lives and careers kind of interrupt those things it oh it's just so good though it's so I honestly recommend it for you Ab because I think you would love it It, it's it's the main character I've said captivating once already today I'm gonna say charming she's incredibly charming and um 
she's really gregarious and she's going through a lot in terms of what she wants to do in life and who she relates to and who her friends are, who, who she lives with, and what she wants to do, who she wants to sleep with. And, but she's just, you're drawn to her so, so much. And it's, it's kind of timeless. Mm. Um, you, you would think it was set now, apart from the fact that people aren't holding phones. The, the, the fashion is timeless as far as I'm concerned. Some of the things that she's wearing, I'm like, I have that. <laughs> it's, um, so it's wonderful. You make me want to watch it now. Yeah, you got it. recommending it for a long time as well. I've just still never got around to, to watching it, but I might even have to watch it tonight. <laughs> I would watch it tonight for sure. And, and what I want you to tell me tomorrow once you've watched it is how you feel about the rabbi. And okay. I'm going to leave it there. How do you feel about the rabbi? You tell me tomorrow. Um, I will. I, I feel a certain way about the rabbi, shall we say. And um, I'm, I just, just want to talk about it. So come back to me tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, there's just one more film that I want to mention that I saw on the big screen, which is a film called Deerskin, which has Adele Chenel from um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Jean Dujardin, who is in The Artist. And it's a French film about a um a fella who's recently divorced and he moves out to sort of a and b in the countryside and buys a deerskin jacket and it's about what it turns him into as he puts this jacket on and how it kind of changed his life and and who he brings into it but it's very fantastical it's kind of a bit of like a short story expanded i would say it really reminded me of films that came out around the time that i worked in a cinema which was sort of 2005 a lot of films were like that then I was with my husband watching the film and he also worked in the cinema at the same time we were like wow that's a real showroom 2005 film that's absolutely (laughs) that those vibes um but it's great really interesting performances really uh peculiar film some laugh out loud moments and some really terrifying and disturbing moments it's got quite um Killing of a Sacred Deer or Lobster vibes. So if anybody's a Yorgos Lanthimos fan, then give that a go. I think it probably kind of came out and went away again, sort of perhaps dropped off people's radars. But again, if you're perhaps looking for something when it comes out on streaming services or maybe you're a programmer and would like to put it on for your community, I really do recommend that one. I think it's a really interesting talking point and two great performances from two really fantastic French actors. Yeah, it it does sound fantastic. Um, And you write about films that are about, like, um, an object and how it changes you or something that you wear, and I I do miss and love that (laughs) storyline as a plot point. That sounds really great, yeah, and some really good actors. It's funny because we watched um, Call My Agent, the TV show, which is kind of like... Kind of like a French extras, I guess, um, about agents in France and actors play themselves. And I'm really hoping there's an Adele Hanzel one um, (gasps) in the new series um, because there was... Who did you say the actor's name was from the artist? Jean Dujardin. Yeah, Jean Dujardin was in one and he was fantastic in it. Amazing. Oh, he's great. He's He's really fabulous. And he's somebody that I... After the artist, I think he did... A couple of Hollywood films. He was in a film I watched recently. Uh, it was about Nazi art and looting of Nazi art. What was that called? Oh, Monuments okay. Men. 
Monuments Man. He was one. He was part of that ensemble cast, but then I've not really seen him in in tons since then. And perhaps he's he's gone back to France and is doing a lot of French stuff again. Um, but he's he's really excellent. He's a very, um, oh my god, I keep saying charismatic, <laughs> but he's super charismatic. Is is extremely. Um, you're very drawn to him on the big screen. Yeah, he definitely has a has a spark. Um, they all sound like great films. Um, really, really good. You're really making the most of those open cinema doors. Definitely. Um, what have you seen? I saw a film called Balado. I know I've talked to you a little bit about it because it's a film we're very interested in. But it was great. It was one of these films that um, is quietly ticking along and then bam, I had an emotional reaction I wasn't expecting, um, which is really nice. Um, it's about a um, girl in... It, it's set in the Caribbean, uh, but in a particularly Dutch-speaking part of there, and um, it's about a little girl who um, just lives with her, her dad, who's a cop and Dutch-speaking and very much in the modern world, and also her grandfather, who is much more connected to the spiritual ancestry of where they're from. So she's kind of in the middle of these two worlds and trying to find her own way. Um, And it's a really powerful performance by everybody. What I like a lot about it is it's not just kind of like everyone's put in their corner of what they represent and then there's no, there's no kind of crossover of their relationships or that they get on in some ways, but in other ways it's difficult and I think it just kind of captures um, that kind of family dynamic. That is true. It's got a lot of love in it, but it's got a lot of complication and a lot of unravelling to happen. Um, and it just looks amazing. Um, I, think it, I think it's shot beautifully and, yeah, really excited for people to see. I think it comes out in November and yeah really special film so try not to let it um slip by you if you do get a chance to see it the other film I watched was uh, I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong (laughs) Tuve how are we pronouncing Tuve is it Tuve Janssen Janssen Turva, Turva Janssen, Moomins, Turva Janssen already. Turva Janssen, yeah, I've been saying Tove all these years, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, and it's all about her and her life. So she's obviously ah! the curator of the the creator of the Moomins, um, but it's about her life at the moment where she's starting to sort of take that more seriously of her side of her, her art because her father was a famous sculptor and she was a painter and he encouraged that side of her very kind of serious art and always kind of motioned that all the Moomin kind of drawings were just silly doodles that she shouldn't be spending her time on and I I, um, I find her very fascinating and I've always really I know you are a massive fan of her work and her as a person and um, me too and so I knew a lot about her, but it was still cool just to watch. Um, I feel like they've tried really hard to use, obviously, the historical material that they have to to build a true picture of what happened in her life when she started to um, go down that route of creating more for the, for the Moomins and also just building herself as an artist and trying to break away as her own thing from her family. And it's set um, in the Second World War at the beginning, and it's just interesting to be in um, Finland, in a different country, 
than you're used to seeing on screen from that point of history you get a lot of france you get a lot of germany you get a lot of all these different places but um the colors were really cool the costumes were amazing and it goes all the way to probably like 1952 um and you see all the styles kind of change subtly and i think it's a very ambitious film it's a period piece it's a, it's a biopic it's got lots of art in it um and it's also about her relationship so her her um romantic relationships uh one with a, a, a gentleman that she met and another with a woman that she also met along the way and it's kind of about her just kind of living that life of, uh, it's all about living her true life both as an artist both as a person romantically um outside of her family and just yeah i i really enjoyed it um it was just a really nice film to watch and lot nice to just see some actors I've not seen before, some different faces. So yeah, Amazing. I'd I'd recommend it if you if you like art and you would just probably find it interesting. I have missed this film coming out. As you know, I'm a massive Tevi Anson fan and a big Moomin fan and also all of her other artwork that she made as well because she was um she was a prolific artist and she made illustrations for for everything from the cover, the finished cover of The Hobbit to yeah. a lot of uh, political drawings during the war. She's just um, somebody that's an absolute hero of mine. So, oh, I'll watch that. Yeah, and I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you, what you think. Um, definitely. I would love to have like other books illustrated by her. <laughs> um, those alternative covers are great. They are. And, Another film I watched very different from that was The Suicide Squad. <laughs> the Suicide Squad, Jack, not Suicide Squad. Oh, yes, obviously. <laughs> this is another one of those moments that happens in movie history all the time where either two films come out at the same time about a similar thing or the similar title or a film gets remade or rebooted and I'd love to know how much money got spent and to be, I'd love to have been in the green room like oh sorry in the room when that got greenlit you know what are we how are we going to differentiate um and basically that's a dc film about and anti-heroes or like super villains in a way uh, that are all in this prison and in order to get th time knocked off their sentence they have to do these very elaborate um you're probably going to die type missions mm. for the government um and yeah, so Viola Davis is in it, isn't it? And it's got like yeah, she was in the last one too. Um, so she's the very serious government official that controls these villains. Um, it's got Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, and um, a few kind of cameos. It's got Pete Davidson from SNL. Oh. Um, and it's a James Gunn film, so he also did uh, Guardians. What's it called? Gu Guardians Galaxy. Yeah, he did Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, he like did. Hitchhiker's yeah. Guide to the Guardians of the Galaxy there. In my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, Scooby-Doo films as well, which I did always he? find. Yeah, he did the, the Linda Cardinelli uh, Scooby-Doo films. And his brother is Kirk from Gilmore Girls. Exactly. So we have a, we have a connection with this, uh, <laughs> with this filmmaker. So he's very... He's kind of like the perfect person to direct this this film, this very lab, like big, explosive, blockbustery, kind of ridiculous um, 
film, superhero film. Um, but it was kind of fun. It's mm. absolutely ridiculous. And it, it feels like it's like it's almost like an 18 year old has watched loads of Tarantino films and loves comic books and then went and made a film but I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily I I feel like it was very entertaining it was um yeah it was just quite enjoyable it's weird because it feels like 90 film trailers as a film it's just like film trailer after film trailer Mm. that's what each scene feels like so it definitely keeps a pace but then it's got these weird glimpses of heart that are actually quite well done but it's just such a head spin tonally sometimes um but yeah all in all because i also saw black widow um a few weeks ago and i've got to say i probably enjoyed the suicide squad more just because it just is a little bit more fun and doesn't take itself too seriously also and also tries to put like character development a little bit strong stronger in it i think but yeah what a romp. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a contrast. What a yeah. collection of films. You, you've really done the whole spray of independent films to the biggest blockbusters we've got out at the moment. So, I mean, that's what, it, that's what it's about, isn't it? Being back at the cinema, being have, having that choice back is, is pretty glorious, really, to be able to go to different types of cinema settings and see all sorts of different types of films and have, you know, a, a really quiet art house experience and have a really flashbang wallop popcorn experience absolutely and they all they all like they all sit side by side for me that's what I absolutely love about film and absolutely love about the cinema and they're about the experiences in a world where our attention is being fought for everywhere we turn Film studios must work harder than ever to capture audiences and entice us to see their films. <laughs> oh god, I'm cringing so hard. No, you've got, you've got a job in this industry now. You think? Oh, I've gone boiling hot. That was embarrassing. This is the love I have for this podcast. <laughs> okay. Around 15 films are released each week in the UK, and in 2021, we live in an abundance of media available for us to consume. The film trailer is one of the best ways to draw attention into seeing film and is one of the special parts of any trip to the cinema. Film trailers are a miniature movie to entice and show us a glimpse of what to expect from an upcoming film, make us want to return to our cinema seats. Just like a movie, they're to be shared and can be uniquely accessed in cinemas, on television and on social media. Movie trailers are still big business, and there are movie trailer houses set up to make these brilliant creations. There are whole YouTube channels and online publications dedicated to them. It's more than a marketing tool, it's become an art form that is celebrated and recognised at award ceremonies such as the Golden Trailer Awards. Like a lot of history, an exact date of when the film trailer began is debated. We asked Professor Keith M. Johnston, who has conducted research into film trailers and their use, to give us some insight. The film trailer's got a, a long history. I mean, and like asking any question of history, there isn't really a, an obvious first we can point at. Um, around about 1912, there's a series of things called series slides, which are effectively um, individual images which um, a cinema projectionist could put up on screen. And they would build up images and, and dialogue and um, titles that would largely just kind of say, this film is coming soon. So you'd get a, a sense of that. But that tends to be done at the exhibition side, tends to be done by the individual cinema. 
around about 1915, 1916, um, there's a film, the film Serial, uh, called The Red Circle, and there's a very early trailer for that, which is largely promoting a, you know, coming next week style idea. Um, the one I always end up with is a film called The Quest of Life, um, which is a famous player's Lasky, um, which would become Paramount, um, film from about 1916. And that's the first one where we've got definite evidence that a bit of film was produced and sent out to exhibitors. It wasn't long until after this point that other studios started to realise that the best place to advertise a film to an audience is in the cinemas where we see them. So yeah, a lot of other studios um, would have started doing this in roughly the same time period. I mean, by about 1918, 1919, the trailer is so dominant that a special um, company is set up to produce trailers. So at that point, you've got a sense that um, it must have been a big deal. Everyone, I think, was trying to make these things. So to have a company that went, you know what, we'll take on that job. We will um, make all your trailers for you. You give us access to your films and we'll make you trailers and send them out for you. It's clear it was a, a big deal within you know, a decade of it beginning. As the studio system in Hollywood began to form and evolve, the film trailer became part of its standardisation. But what was it like in the UK? The situation in the UK is a bit different. Um, in, in the sense of we don't know that much about it. Um, there's a company called WinAds, um, which is set up in the early 1920s, and they clearly are making some trailers um, in that period. Um, the reason we know they exist is because there's kind of a couple of little bits and pieces of information about them. But the main reason is in 1926, National Screen Service, which is the US trailer maker, um, set up in the UK, and they make a big fuss about being here and the fact that they're launching this amazing new trailer service. And you get this um, back and forth in trade press from Winads going, hang on, we were here first. We've been doing this for several years. Um, so we know there is a competition in the UK between these two big companies. A competition that National Screen Service uh, UK largely wins because they've got all the contracts. So they've got the contracts of all the big players um, so Winards aren't really allowed to use material from the films from that point. So National Screen monopolises the industry in both America and in the UK. Um, but it's a very much a British setup. National Screen UK is overseen from the US, but it's very much based around um, the British industry and advertising that series of British films from the 1920s on. The UK and the US would often be able to see the same films in retrospective countries, but they both have different censorship, sensibilities and audiences that all affect how a trailer for the same film might be constructed. Um, so National Screen um, UK has a lady who works there called Esther Harris, who is like the trailer maker in Britain for decades. Um, from the 1930s um, through to at least the 1970s, um, she is basically in charge of National Screen and is their main trailer producer. And she says, um, there's a talk she gives in the uh, early 1950s, where she says that you've got to be very careful when cutting trailers for UK films, because the UK audience responds to something very different to the US audience. And she talks about um, the use of language, in terms of the kind of language you can use, um, as well as the kind of images you might use in a trailer um, and the kind of titles you would use. So she clearly sees a distinction between what a British audience would respond to from a trailer. And when that same trailer went to the US, they would have to recut it. 
um, and sometimes make it quicker. There's this idea that US trailers might be a bit more fast paced. Um, and the inverse of that is that national screen in Britain would have to recut American trailers um, and often revoice them um, because sometimes they'd want a British voice on them rather than an American voice. And sometimes they'd have to cut them for censorship reasons um, because the uh, British Board of Film Censors would, would classify trailers as well. So um, National Screen UK had to make sure that the films, they, the trailers they recut were suitable for the British audience. Whilst it's been a distinctive male voice that has narrated trailers with such famous catchphrases like in a world, at National Screen Service UK, it was a woman behind the making of decades worth of trailers. Yeah, I mean, Esther Harris is is almost a lone voice in, in terms of being a woman in, in this industry. Um, I mean, you can see um, there's issues of something called um, NNS, NSS, which is the National Screen Service newsletter for employees. Um, and all the stories in there when women feature, they are unfortunately in, you know, their secretaries. They are kind of in those roles. They're not in the editing, writing, production side as much. Whereas Esther Harris is. She's just central to everything that's done. And she comes up from a secretarial role, but she starts doing the job. And I say by the 1950s, she's running the company. Um, and it, it would be lovely to find out what else she was able to do. You know, did she feel that she had a responsibility to bring other women into the industry? Or was she in such a male-dominated industry that that wasn't even really a possibility? We don't really know enough about those individuals. Um, we're lucky that we have information about her because she was so central to NSS UK, but most of the other figures um, are male. And there isn't even really any evidence that... Um, she would push to say have a female voiceover on a trailer, which you know is still unique today, was was almost unheard of in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, so it would be lovely to know more about what she was doing, but I suspect she was in such a limited capacity in, in terms of what she could do to bring change to that industry. The film trailer has an interesting and long history, but what is it about trailers that we're drawn to as audiences? I think the attraction of the film trailer um, for the audience is is the lure, the kind of the tease. Um, and, you know, that can go badly wrong. You know, audiences can respond very badly to trailers that they feel are revealing too much. But I think for many audiences, there is a love for seeing something new, for getting a hint of what might be coming. Um, I think there's a very de delicate balance to be struck between showing too much and showing enough that gets people excited. Um, but, you know, we did a, an audience research project a couple of years back, and although audiences did occasionally feel that they'd been spoiled by trailers, they clearly still liked them. They clearly still enjoyed that experience of either tracking them down on the internet, watching and re-watching them. Um, there were people who responded saying that they liked going back to old trailers of films they knew um, because there was a, a comfort and a nostalgia in, in remembering the first time you saw footage from that film. So I think it's quite complex. Um, I think there's a very basic, do I want to see that film? I think there's a very kind of uh, basic idea of um, something there has, has piqued my interest, therefore I want to go back and see whatever the film is. Um, and I think there's also a, an uncertainty around, you know, watching too much. And I think that the trailer is, is kind of stuck in that, in that mid-ground, trying to appeal to the wide audience, but not 
being able to show too much. I think trailers will always be there. I think their role could shift. Um, so over history, the trailer's always been very much part of the kind of film-going experience. And then, of course, in the 1950s, when television comes along, you know, the audience of cinema drops. So trailer producers move the trailer onto television. So you get television trailers. Um, in the 1980s, when home video causes a similar drop in film admissions, the film trailer moves onto video. When the internet comes along, it moves onto the internet. So it's, it's been really flexible as a format in terms of where it can go. And obviously on the internet, it sits alongside um, many other short video forms. Um, and that was also true when it was in television, it sits alongside an advertising break. So I think that the flexibility of the trailer has helped it survive. Um, it's no longer just rooted in the, in the cinema. It's no longer just that you have to be in the cinema to see this thing. To find out more about the integral role of film trailers and how they're made, we wanted to speak to someone who creates trailers in today's world. So uh, I'm Andrew Tai. Uh, I'm a producer at Intermission Amsterdam. Uh, I've worked for the company for, for five years now and joined as a very wet behind the ears um, uh, film lover and, you know, learnt the trade uh, of making film trailers, promos uh, and now key art you know, for clients all over, all over the world, really. Uh, it's been a really fun, fun journey that's taken me to Amsterdam this year uh, to focus uh, primarily on working with uh, clients in the EMEA territories. So we're doing lots of stuff with, with the Netherlands, Germany, Scandinavia. Um, it's all really exciting. Very busy at Cannes this year, uh, working on lots of different things. Um, but yes... A film trailer production company can be part of a film's life at inception and can often go beyond the trailers that you and I see at the cinema. We love to be working on a project where you work on a sizzle reel that visualises the script in a visual treatment form that goes to various film festivals or sales agents can help, you know, help the sales agents sell the movie and then at that point create a promo for the sales agent to take to the next big festival, whether that's Berlin or AFM or Cannes. And then, you know, ideally that film gets sold to a distributor and then we can be involved in the actual consumer facing trailer. So that's the whole like life cycle uh, of, the, of, of the film, really. And we like to be involved from the very beginning because um, we can help, uh, particularly at early stages, help visualize uh, a, a script and help producers see the, how they could market their film eventually. It's not only important to create a great film trailer, but to connect it with an audience. Is this usually done by the trailer company or the distributor or studio of the film? Yeah, audiences, it, it, it depends really. Like it's, if you work with film distributors who, who have a finished product and they know that they're going to the consumer, they will have a good idea of what their audience is, you know, as part of their wider marketing strategy. They, you know, we work with marketing managers at some of the biggest distributors you know, in the world and, and, um, and they uh, will have a clear idea of their positioning. And obviously we, play our role in that as well like we are we know we're not only a creative agency but we like we consult our clients as well and and we will propose ideas about audience groups particularly when we're working on multiple assets and social media and all these kind of things so yes um they the, the distributors are very clued onto that um with when you're working with production companies and producers you know that's when our expertise can be helpful as well because it's something that can be discussed you know, it's often that you see that the positioning of film can change 
um, particularly when you've been working on a promo and then and we position it in a certain way for a certain audience that's been discussed with the with the sales agent or producer um, but ultimately that might not be the market that the distributor wants to go for so they might have to do something a bit different um, so you've got to be kind of flexible and it's something that's all discussed it's a very collaborative process which is nice um, but we like to think that we have you know we've, done, we've worked on lots of campaigns and got lots of experience you know targeting specific audiences um, so it's a nice collaborative process in that sense. As we know, teams of people are responsible for making films. But who is it that's responsible to making the film trailer? The production of a trailer is a very collaborative process uh, and there's a lot of moving parts. Um, however, you can't make a trailer without an editor, an offline editor to be specific. And at Intermission, we're really, really lucky to have a growing, uh, a growing team of incredibly talented creatives in this department. Um, and essentially the process starts with them um, you know they'll have access to the film they'll break it down into bite-sized chunks of dialogue and great picture and they'll use that as the basis to come up with a you know a, a range of creative concepts um, we like to give our editors the the space to um, try things out you know it's not something that happens in a matter of days it's off a v1 is often you know a couple of weeks although sometimes we're on crazy deadlines where we have to do it quicker but Having the time, you know, allows allows us to try things out and find different stories because our editors are natural storytellers. They're all hugely passionate about film and have this amazing talent to to see um, stories, different types of stories that can be formulated into short form. Um, and it's an it's an amazing skill. Um, we're really lucky to have them. So obviously, once that kind of rough edit is in place. Um, the motion graphics become incredibly important as well. And this is how, you know, the the visual treatment of the title, the way that graphics appear on, on screen, whether that's quotes or copy cards, or sometimes you know, these interact with backgrounds using like um, uh, rotoscoping and kinetic typography. And that all comes from our motion graphics department, uh, again, which is which is growing. We've got a, an amazing team now that work, you know, work mainly in After Effects uh, to create these at these amazing graphics. It's a very collaborative process in the sense that the editors and graphics team are often talking and you know thinking about the best way to portray the graphics on screen. And it's my role as a producer or you know project manager essentially to to work with those teams and make sure you know you know that I'm obviously communicating the the wishes of the client but also coming up with creative ideas myself and feeding in and batting ideas off each other. So it's a really you know fun fun process in that sense. You know, once you've got that trailer in a good shape, it's looking good, it's sounding good, we're happy with the ideas. Um, um, we have to, you know, once that's signed off with the client, essentially, and they're happy with it as well, there's a whole other team involved with making that trailer, you know, consumer ready. And um, we put it in, in our finishing department, essentially. So we have an online editor who, who basically masters the trailers to make them full resolution, making them look good with color grading sometimes as well, so that these files can then be sent off to our um, our, our, our distributor partners or cinemas or wherever the trailer's going. Um, so those are the core elements, but you know, Intermission, we're a big company now and there's a load of other team members that are completely essential. You know, we have a team of young um, edit assistants 
that work with us that are you know are the future you know stars of our company and the future editors and you know, they've all got a passion for editing um, but often we uh, we integrate them into our kind of technical side so they're, they're dealing with the materials and ingesting the huge amount of media that we have and managing that process and making sure the editors have the, what they need all the sound effects they need all the materials are up to date um, and also we have our production assistants who work with the production team that are our future producers who are helping projects run on time run smoothly uh, and helping the team uh, essentially deliver these trailers um, you can also look at you know other elements that are used to to create the film trailer and we work a lot with copywriters um, you know internally and externally you know to help editors come up with creative concepts for trailers using copy lines or ideas that are structured into script form that are hugely helpful when you're kind of coming up with different concepts in the edit suite. Um, and uh, obviously the most important thing we haven't discussed yet is music and we'll go on to that later but you know music supervisors are incredibly important as well and they can offer you a completely unique perspective on, on, on music and tracks that you might consider in the edit. Um, and we work with music music supervisors from all over, uh, and in my opinion, they are they're they're worth their weight in gold when they come up with the amazing track that makes the, just elevates the trailer and it's a natural fit. So that's essentially how the team that's involved. Intermission have a core team in house that can fit all these amazing roles that go into making these miniature films we know as trailers. But what are some of the integral parts that make a trailer? You know, music and trailers have always been something that's completely essential. Like you can go back to, you know, the the 80s and where, you know, I remember the like, trailer for Alien, for instance, it's all about sound design and music. Like tra- I think it's been known that for a long time now that music is an essential device to make this kind of short form, uh, creative, interesting, engaging, and can make you feel a certain emotion. Um, you know, but... It's developed over time, of course, and that's usually because you get a big IP that has a, you know, for instance, if you watch like the social network, you see creep, um, like trailerized essentially by a cover artist. And then that becomes hugely popular and groundbreaking for the distributor and then other agents, you know, everyone wants to imitate that. So what you've seen at the moment is a case where trailer music is now like a proper thing. So. There's lots of libraries out there, production libraries and composers that are, you know, are essentially uh, re, um, doing covers of famous songs. And there was a very big period when I first joined Intermission where covers were really popular and particularly for kind of bigger IP. Um, but obviously it still costs lots of money because those songs are still owned by the writers. So you still have to pay vast quantities of money to use them. So trailer music has become its own genre for sure. You know, it's, he- it's very sound design heavy. It uses lots of sound effects and big hits that an editor can manipulate to create a kind of a, a strong kind of cohesive, exciting uh, edit. Um, and, you know, the, the options are almost limitless now with the amounts of libraries working today. You know, we get hundreds of emails every week from supervisors with different, different trailer tracks. But, you know, us at Intermission, we've always felt that we, 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 well, we work on a lot of independent film and where that kind of music isn't really the right sentiment, something more emotive and something like using sound design or, or using sometimes composed music, which we like to do, uh, to create something a bit more subtle and, and elegant to match what the, 
the, the kind of film that we're working on. Uh, so, you know, everyone in Smission is very focused on starting from the ground up with music and sound design. Uh, and it's something that we take extremely seriously and it's kind of the basis for what we do. So finding the right track uh, and the right, whether we find a piece of music, we build it ourselves with sound design sometimes, or we go down the composition route. It's something that we're all very interested in, but the key thing is to be flexible and every project is different and you, there's no point pigeonholing anything uh, to fit certain uh, trends you know, that's not what we want to do. We want to give the creative, you know, the creative must give the film the best chance possible of cutting through in a really competitive market. So we have to try and do original things, which is what we want. I was curious to find out what kind of films are the most fun to make trailers for. You know, the type of films I like to, to watch aren't necessarily the type of trailers I like to work on. Um, you know, I love kind of independent, like kind of quite dark dramas and, um, and, and, and a lot of satire as well. But... Um, but you know, I love working on horror trailers, for instance. I don't watch horror movies. I never go to Fright Fest, but horror trailers are great fun to work on because you know, it's something you can be very creative with musically uh, and with motion graphics, and you can create these insane little two-minute pieces which you know, always come together very, very well in my experience. Um, but then again, I, I love working on a, a stripped-down um, art house movie where you've hardly got any music at all. Um, and doing something really interesting with that, um, I find fascinating. Um, but every, like I said before, every project is different. And there's um, sometimes, you know, for me, I prefer when a project just runs smoothly and everyone's on board with what we're doing. Uh, because obviously sometimes it's difficult and, and you try to find the, find the answer and it can take a long time to get right. I often wondered what it felt like for a trailer creator to see their own creations on screen during their leisure time at the cinema. It's, it's really a lovely feeling actually seeing, seeing your work being uh, put out there on a VCP. Obviously you see it on a screen when you, when you QC it uh, at the end of the day when you're delivering the DCP to your client, but seeing it in a cinema, I've, it's happened on multiple times where I've been with friends, I was like, oh, there's my trailer that I worked on um, uh, with our team and um which is yeah it's very rewarding to be honest and that's one of the things that i think why we we all love our, love our jobs so much is because it's working on like a tangible piece of you know it, it, well it's become its own art form in some respect and it's it, it it's a tangible thing that we can all look back on and and put on our website and be really proud of uh, and it's uh, i think everyone feels the same way Intermission have worked on so many fantastic film and tv trailers including ammonite i may destroy you and the last tree but I wondered which projects Andrew was most proud of being a part of. We worked on a really good campaign for Studio Canal last year, obviously because of COVID in 2019, we did the tra UK trailer for St Maud. Uh, it was obviously the A24 launched the US trailer with the Billie Eilish track, um, which is you know really cool, but we were working on it at the same time. And then the Studio Canal brief was a little bit different. It was kind of to position it more as a kind of independent um, genre piece and, the psychological elements and and we you know our editor here Fern did an absolutely incredible job on it um it's a really strong genre piece that hits all the right notes I think it was quite successful for for the client as well I loved that um yeah I've, I've, I've done a lot of foreign foreign language as well that I'm really proud of working on like specifically for me I, I really part of me moving to Europe was to work on more um, foreign language art house films and we 
we did the trailer for Capernaum, the Nadine Labaki film about the young child, um, Zane living in Beirut and kind of um, his kind of hardship of, you know, being essentially abandoned in, in a city like that. And we did a beautiful trailer for that, um, for Picture House, um, which I was a huge fan of. Um, and then Fantastic Woman for Curzon. Again, that was had a, a lot of success um, on, you know, I think it was nominated for Academy Award. For both Keith and Andrew, film trailers are significant to their lives and their jobs, but I was interested to know which trailers have stood out to them as film fans. There's a trailer, I don't know when I saw it, I'm fairly sure I, it was before I started kind of really digging into trailers as, as for research. There's a trailer for a film called The Thin Man, which is a 1934 William Powell, Myrna Loy uh, detective film. Um, and it's a fun little film, but the trailer is one of these specially shot ones where William Powell is in it in character as um, Nick Drake. Is it Nick Drake? I think who's the character in The Thin Man. And he's speaking to William Powell, who is playing another character from another detective story. And they're having a conversation about the new film, the new case that he's working on. And it's this beautifully postmodern, really meta trailer, but it's from 1934. And it's just not what you expect. Um, of that kind of classical Hollywood trailer. So I kind of love the, the oddness of that one. And it, it's, it stays with me. Um, and when you put it alongside something like the uh, trailer for Comedian, the Jerry Seinfeld film that was obviously, again, making fun of the idea of trailer voiceovers and the kind of the voice of God style narration, or even the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trailer, which had Stephen Fry as the voice of the book talking about what makes a good movie trailer. Um, but still, the Thin Man one from 1934 does all that, you know, 70 years before. So, that, you know, that, those kind of ones stick with me because, because they, they stand out and they don't quite fit the, the normal pattern of what trailers do. One that we always reference, you know, we talked earlier about the importance of music and sound design. It was the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man, uh, that uses kind of rhythm um, to kind of contextualise the kind of inner turmoil of the main the main character whose head's like bashing against the wall. It's just so like such a creative idea. Lots of clients come to us and say, oh, have you seen the Serious Man trailer? Can you can you create like a rhythmic trailer spot with that? Um I I think I don't know if you've seen the trailer for Cloverfield as well. I think it's really, you know, something that has a high concept. Something you know, it's not just cutting together elements of a film and saying here it's here's what it looks and sounds like. It's coming up with something original, exciting, that really delivers a strong positioning message. I think the Cloverfield, Matt Reeves from Cloverfield does a really good job because it's essentially a scene with no musical sound design and it's, it's a found footage almost like, so it starts at a party and it, you, know, you, have, you see the handheld camera and then the incident of the, the monster starts terrorizing the city and then it disrupts the flow of the party and then everything kind of escalates. It's really clever, clever marketing piece. I, I really enjoyed like more recently as well, the, um, the Us, Jordan Peele Us trailer. I think it's, um, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, it uses, um, oh, what track? Yeah, a five on it, a uh, remix of it, but it works so well. It's like a, like a hip hop that track that constantly turns into this kind of dark, horror piece it's very effective but you can go back in time with this because you know one of the most influential film trailers i think is is this kubrick's trailer for dr strangelove which is the first time you're seeing because in traditionally trailers always had 
you know, a scene in that period, just a scene from the film, or sometimes you had some narration from a voiceover. Um, but na- but that was a piece of music, a copy music, an image, all integrated into one thing, and it all the copy cuts to the to the the piano keys, which you know it's gen- gen- absolute genius. And I think some stuff like that is kind of what shapes the future of how these kind of things can be created. <laughs> Man, I love trailers so much. I could literally watch them in the cinema all day. Do you have a favourite trailer, Jack? It's not necessarily a favourite trailer, but it's a very memorable trailer. And I'm of the generation where trailers used to be on videos as well as on films. Like, you'd have to watch, like, five or six trailers before, you know, and you'd fast-forward them, but sometimes you wouldn't. You would just watch the same. I think I watched the Sabrina trailer for the remake with Harrison Ford about a billion times. I watched Tommy Boy about a billion times, which is an, another really great trailer. But I'm thinking about when I was a pretentious 17-year-old at Stoke-on-Trent City Sixth Form College doing key skills, and we had to show something that we really liked and then give an oral presentation on it. And I think it was the first time I'd ever given an oral presentation like that in front of everybody, and I showed them an old trailer for Breakfast at Tiffany's that was at the start of my video of Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I was obsessed with when I was a teenager because I loved Audrey Hepburn because all teenage girls love Audrey Hepburn, basically. And, um, oh, it's just so cringy, Ab. Just standing <laughs> up at the front of all of these 17-year-olds in Stoke being like, this is Audrey Hepburn. And this is George Peppard. You may know him from the A-team. <laughs> and, like... This is Patricia Neal. She was married to Roald Dahl, but he was a to her. Like, oh no, sorry, Jay, you're going to have to beep a, a bad word there. But yeah, just feeling very proud of myself, but then seeing a lot of black faces looking back at me like, what is this? What are you showing us? And afterwards, the teacher, who was also my philosophy teacher, was like, that was very brave. And he literally said that was very brave. And I was like, oh, God, I'm the most cringy person. Wow, a philosophy teacher who could probably find, uh, you know, an interesting Mm. take on anything said that it was brave. Um, Yeah, very brave of you to bring your little trailer to these these kids that do not My favourite part of that, I think, is you you know, saying that they might recognise an actor from the A-team to try and, like, bring it to them. Like, bring it to the current times. Um, Well, I... Bring it to the current times, like the year 2000 they wouldn't have been watching no. the 80 what was i thinking what was i thinking <laughs> well i i love that and if i was in your college class i would definitely want to befriend you after that oh thanks also that day i drew all over my leg accidentally um because i was so nervous i think i'd been like tracing my pen across my thigh whilst i was waiting and i stood up and there was big biro scribble on my trousers <laughs> oh what a great day what a great day if you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help us in for our podcast, you can rate and review us on iTunes, share it on social media, or even just tell your friends about it. It goes such a long way. But for now, it's time to roll credits. Producer, Jake Glatt. Logo designed by Lydia Lipinski at Thoughts Make Things. Hosted by Jack Chell and Abby Standish with thanks to Professor Keith M. Johnston, Andrew Tai, Intermission and Deborah Parker. The Cinema for All podcast is supported by the BFI awarding funds from the National Lottery. Thank you!